night rings through. Thank you, Dobby. Um, and thank you all for being here. And um, I'm really psyched to be reading as part of uh, Poetry Night. The last time I read here, I want to say, was not in Bellingham. I mean, for Poetry Night, I think it was like eight years ago. Um, and it was a great reading then. And just the energy that you all create here is fantastic. So I'm really psyched to be here with you. Um, and I think, okay, I did it by myself. Excellent. I didn't break it. Um, that was scary. Uh, it was nice that Dobby mentioned the work I do for KOW because the first poem I want to read for you actually started in the newsroom at KOW. Um, I was uh, working and uh, just as the newscaster for NPR was announcing something overhead because, of course, the news is always, you know, piped in overhead in the newsroom, um, my phone went off and my niece had texted me. And the collision between the nature of her text and what was going on overhead um, sent me into the ladies' restroom at KOW to start this poem. Um, and I'll just tell you that the title of the poem is also the entire contents of the text from my niece. I had my first kiss. My niece's text arrives as the newscaster announces a bomb landing just outside Jerusalem. Was it what you hoped for? I text back. Delight battling instant anxiety. Don't get pregnant. <laughs> the voice on the radio intones a preliminary body count. She's eaten from the tree of knowledge, and all I see is the garden gate closing behind her. Her holy city bombed, the harvest burnt, every olive tree uprooted. Write down what happened and how you feel, I text to a 14-year-old who reads little more than status updates. What am I thinking? Celebration in the refugee camps, the voice reports, but already jets overhead. Childhood scrambled by a mother bent on drinking away her own damaged youth. Maybe my niece's childhood's been over for a long time. Or maybe I'm the one who's stuck in the old story the one where any taste of sweetness is paid for with years of bitter herbs. Look twice before you cross that border, I'm begging, while she's tasting snowflakes on her tongue. Learn to tell your own story I want to write. To her, to me, put what's delicious into your own words so you can keep it, no matter what comes next. Thank you. Am I doing okay volume-wise? Okay, great. Excellent. This poem is in two voices. So two sections, two voices. The first line is also the um, title. I remember the bruise 
blooming on her perfect skin, her body marred for the first time by Yahweh himself, a blemish to spare her from the sacrifice to other gods, a girl like you or me otherwise. Who was she? Why does her story, told in, what, an after-school special, a religion-class film strip, why is it the mark and not her name or whatever he required of her next, whether she birthed a king, prophesied, or redeemed her tribe, why is what lingers all these years later the mottled shadow on her arm? And what was it the story intended to teach us? That he loved her enough to claim her for his own? Or is the lesson the price of divine favor, the weight of the Lord's hand on a girl's body? I had no blemish. I had not yet bled. No man knew my body, though I saw the hunger in my neighbor's eyes in his son's. I tell you, I was perfect, unmarked, until the very moment the priests came to take me to the altar. I was proud to be the one chosen to trade my body for rain. My death would feed the tribe. The Israelites' God had no right to me, but laid his thumbprint on my arm. I had no choice in the matter. When one God marks you, all the other gods become blind to you. This is called, Will You Take This Woman? Awake again, hours before you, saturated with sweat and the scent of another infidelity. All night I loved another, someone famous or faceless, my legs sticky with it, though the body you curl around never left our bed. Another betrayal comes later, when I'll stand mute in our kitchen, your good morning unanswered, as I savor his salt on my tongue. Another betrayal comes later, when I'll stand mute in our kitchen, your good morning unanswered, as I savor his salt on my tongue, her sugar on my fingers. I keep for myself the dream world and the body I inhabit there. I won't ask whose lover you are during these hours I lie listening to you sleep, listening to you breathe. We tender our daylit minds, mortal bodies, enough to choose each other in the waking hours left us. So I grew up Catholic, and the passing of the basket is, you know... No, in Southern California. And the funny thing is that as I'm reading the poem, out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, if this poem sucks, nobody's going to put any money into the basket. I probably should have read something else for the... So...
<laughs> All right. So um, I loved the Tony Hoagland uh, quote that you read at the beginning. If you have not read his book, Real Sophistication, which is a book of essays about poetry, I heartily recommend it. He writes in such an engaging and interesting, funny, accessible, smart way um, that he just always kind of turns me uh, on my head about poetry. And what I love about that quote that you read about English and the way it, English is so omnivorous is that it's something that I love about English, but it also led to um, a real puzzle for me about what I see as a real gap in the language. Um, and so this poem is thinking about that. Uh, the, I should tell you that the last line of the poem is completely stolen from a Lee Young Lee poem called Self-Help for Fellow Refugees. And it opens with a, a, an epigraph, a Chinese proverb, the beginning of wisdom is in getting things by their right name untitled ear nose eye we teach every child to point and name the child goes to school learns he is the norm she the grammatical variant when the place between her legs is left unnamed what does the child learn but that what she discovers there doesn't quite exist except to be washed, face averted. Eventually, she'll find the desiccated, reticent Latinates, the language and labels of diagnosis and prohibition, a linguistic burqa, rooted in hudere, be ashamed. She'll find the juvenile slang, metaphors of confused fascination, geographic euphemisms, might as well call it Australia, quarter of a million words, but not one with the raw authority, the accurate, forgive me, mouthfeel of the thing itself. So taboo as to be nameless, that place all human aching starts. Thank you. So as I was driving north today, I passed the turnoff for Highway 530 and the sign for Darrington and the notice about the detour. Um, and I, I want there to be a, a shrine or something there. Um, there is a... Um, there's a, um, a Tumblr site where people are posting poems uh, and photos for the people um, who are affected by the mudslide. And though I didn't write this poem for that occasion, it's, it's a very recent poem that's thinking about unspeakable grief. And um, I posted it there. And there, I have a link to that Tumblr site, the address of which I cannot remember to save my life right now. But there's a, a, a Washington Poet Laureate blog, just wapoetlaureate.org. And I have a link to that Tumblr site. If you feel moved to post something, I would encourage you to do that. So this is a poem uh, that borrows heavily from both Emily Dickinson and Margaret Atwood. And it's called A Formal Feeling Comes. Start with what is near, your own hand, knotted pine, graying picnic table, see before you speak, knotted hand, graying pine, empty table, 
When you cannot welcome what is difficult to say, repeat a gesture, open your hand, set the table with familiar linen, until it is ritual, until it calms your need. Find your allies in the speechless beauties, pine, yes, and maple, hemlock, fir. Form lends freedom, if not ease. Take whatever hand is offered, sit at the table spread before you. Let quiet include birdsong. Thank you very much. So those were all pretty recent poems. I'm going to read a, just a few now from Every Dress a Decision. Uh, my Every Dress a Decision. I believe that copies are available at the merch table at the back. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. <laughs> I thought so. It can be hard for poets to do that, so sometimes we need a reminder. Thank you. Um, sorry, I had a note about what I was... Okay. Uh, This is called Humans, and it opens with an epigraph from the great poet W.S. Merwin, who described humans as a brief and strange species. <laughs> the day begins in disarray. You ought, you should, you must, you must, you must. The bees will not be stilled. What stitches mind to body? Who cues the unraveling? If it's true, we're infused with something not found in doorknob, bird, or bee, why am I confused about all the important things? Crows trampoline the power lines from house to house. They don't care who runs the world. I gape at the sky, color of sunflower, color of blood. The world is not as I have believed it to be. I find no vantage, no long view across even the surface. Peristalsis propels the worm into darkness. Electricity animates the lamp. The leaf drinks at the top of the tree. I understand none of the beautiful things. The sparrow bathes in dirt. I don't know why. The birds do not ask themselves or each other, how are we to live? They do not ask us to love them. This is called Brother. Eleven years old, a curious boy a little sister nearby, willing to do whatever you asked. I was six. What did I know except for a few indelible moments, my body, the absolute center of my big brother's attention? It was as simple as that. Years later, I thought I understood what had fractured that afternoon. I wrote, you did this damage. You wrote, I'm sorry, can we be okay? Words on a page. You wanted it to be as simple as that. I fold and unfold your letters, your obituaries, 
useless, these lopsided conversations. No reason not to trust you now. I am not that girl, and you are not anything. Who am I to forgive now that I always have the last useless word? And this is called Not My Brother. He crosses the path of a blue sedan, bounces twice, and embraces the road, his cheek pressed to asphalt as if merely napping. Sunlight splinters off the fractured windshield. A stranger. I run to him, frantic to see his chest rise or lips part. He is not my brother. If this is his last minute, here in the middle of the road, let him be accompanied. Give him at least a stranger's touch. Let him not be my brother. Let him not die alone. Thank you. Um, For some reason, I planned a dark set tonight, and y'all went there with me, so thank you for that. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to close with a a very different kind of poem. Um, And... uh, It's called The Girl Who Goes Alone. Any hikers in the audience? I'm in Bellingham. I sure hope there would be a few. Okay. Here's the thing about being a girl and wanting to play outside. All the grown-ups grinded into you from the get-go. Girls outside aren't safe. That guy in the car, if he rolls down the window and leans his head out, run. Because the best you can hope for is a cat call. And at worst, you'll wind up with your face on the side of a milk carton. Even when you're a grown-up girl, your father, because he loves you, will send you a four-page article about how to protect yourself while standing at the ATM while jogging solo, an article informing you how to distinguish phony police and avoid purse snatchers, pickpockets, rapists, and thugs. Tell someone you're going into the woods alone, and they'll story your head with trailside cougar attacks, cave-dwelling misogynists, lightning strikes, forest fires, flash floods, and psychopaths with a sixth sense for a woman alone in a tent. To be a girl alone in the wilderness is to know that if something goes wrong, you picked the trailhead where the axe murderer lurks or the valley of girl-eating gophers. If you don't come home intact, the morning will be mixed with I told you so's from everyone whose idea of camping involves an RV or a Motel 6. The message is clear. Girls must be chaperoned. So when, at the end of the day, you zip up the tent and lie back in your sleeping bag, the second you close your eyes, every least night noise is instantly magnified. You lie there and consider the pungent heft of menstrual blood, how even your sweat is muskier, louder when you're bleeding. Not hard to imagine its animal allure, every bear for miles around sniffing you on the night wind. 
You lie there, listening, running a mental inventory of any potentially scented item. Did every one make it into the food bag hung from a tree? Toothpaste, trail mix, chapstick, sunscreen. Fuck, sunscreen still in your pack, nestled right beside you where outdoor man used to sleep. So you're up, out of the tent, headlamp casting its too bright spotlight, darkening the dark outside its reaches. You lower the bag, shove the sunscreen in, hoist and tie. Far enough from the ground to elude the bears? Far enough along the branch to thwart raccoons? Tree far enough from the tent to keep from signaling the proximity of ground-level, girl-shaped snacks? (laughs) You go alone, in part, to prove that though outdoor man has left you, his body is the only geography he can deprive you of. He can give his muscled calves and thighs his... Shoulders, chest, and hands to another woman, but not the Sauk River old growth. Snowfields of Rainier, sea stacks of Shy Shy. He can keep you from the sweet, blood-thrilling hum of his body, but not the sweaty, blood-thumping pleasure of a hard-earned panoramic view or high-altitude starlight. The thing about being a girl who goes alone, who goes again and again, is that it freaks the potential next boyfriend. (laughs) He doesn't want to be out machoed, and he doesn't want to admit it, and he hopes you can't tell. The thing about being a girl who still goes alone is that it proves you don't need him, and no matter how you show him, you want him. It's not the same, and you both know it. Zipped back into the tent, you remind yourself... You've never really been in danger. When have you ever been in danger? Well, there was that boy, but years ago, a teenager like you, driving around bored and pissed at the world, his BB gun and his father's two rifles on the seat beside him. Lucky you. The gun he leveled on the window ledge lodged nothing more than a BB in your thigh. The thing about being a girl who goes alone is you know too much about the grain of truth in the warnings. Even if you seem impervious, weird, good luck, leaving you so far unscathed, you know the other girl's stories. Your sister, date raped after a party in college, a friend raped by a stranger at knife point, the two women shot on the Pinnacle Lake Trail, the singer killed by coyotes in Nova Scotia, The thing about being a girl who goes alone is that you feel like you shouldn't go if you're afraid. If you go, it should mean that you're not afraid, that you're never afraid. Your friends will think that you go unafraid. This girl who goes alone is always afraid, always negotiating to keep the voices in her head at a manageable pitch of hysteria. I go knowing that there will be a moment, maybe long moments, maybe hours, maybe the whole trip, when I curse myself for going alone, when I lie in the tent and all I am is fear. But I walk into the wilderness alone because the animal in me needs to fill her nose with the scent of stone and lichen, ocean salt and pine forest warming in early sun. I walk into the wilderness alone so I can hear myself, so I can feel real to myself. The girl who goes alone 
claims for herself the Madrona, Juniper, Daybreak. She claims Hemlock, Prairie Falcon, Nightfall. She claims Nurse Log, Sea Star, Glacial Moraine, Huckleberry, Trillium, Salal, Snowmelt, Avalanche Lily, Waterfall, Cirque, Saddle, Summit, Ocean. She claims the curve of the earth. The girl who goes alone says with her body, the world is worth the risk. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it.